Hello everyone, Dominic here. This episode of the History of Egypt podcast is a summary episode. We've spent a few months immersed in the second phase of King Akhenaten's reign, and it's time to wrap up some of the highlights and major trends. Today, we explore the events which occurred between Regnal Year 6 and Regnal Year 12 of this pharaoh's rule. Recapping quickly, the first phase of Akhenaten's reign, years 1 to 5, saw the king appear on the throne as Amunhotep IV. He married Queen Nefertiti and began building monuments to his sun god Aten at Karnak. Constructing large sanctuaries, which have been identified and excavated, the king filled them with elaborate statues of himself and his wife. These statues, and the two-dimensional art which decorated the temple's voles, showcased a new vision of Pharaoh. Voluptuous, prosperous, and perhaps laden with symbols of fertility, Amunhotep IV revealed something new, an artistic identity that would become famous the world over. Pharaoh's changes to the official cults were sweeping. In a speech recorded at the Temple of Karnak, the young monarch declared that many of the old gods had stopped. They were no longer meaningful or necessary. Simultaneously, the king diverted huge resources to supplying his new temples. Goods, offerings, and people all flowed to the Aten sanctuaries in vast quantities. It seems that the pharaoh was playing for big prizes. Such movements may have led to resistance, or perhaps the pharaoh realised that he needed to move elsewhere to make his vision a full reality. So it was that in year 5, Amunhotep IV took on a new name, Akhenaten. In Egyptian, this was probably pronounced Akanyati, and it could either mean effective for the Aten, or effective for my father. Either one, or both, is possible. Whatever its exact meaning, the king's new name was soon followed by a new direction in policy. In year 5, the newly christened Akhenaten abandoned the southern city of Thebes and moved north. He chose a new location, which he called Aket Aten, the horizon of Aten. This would be the site of his palace, his tomb, and most importantly, his temples to the sun god. Aten would have multiple sanctuaries within the new city, and to supply them, the king defined a wide swathe of territory that would provide tax or offerings of food and goods. From regnal year 5, the horizon of Aten would be the new epicentre of Pharaoh's ideas. Regnal year 6, around 1357 BCE, was the start of Akhenaten's residency at his new capital. He established Aket Aten, the horizon of Aten, in year 5, but it probably wasn't until a year later that he started living full-time in the new location. Regnal years 7 and 8, 1356 and 1355 BCE, saw the completion of some monuments that had started in the city. The massive boundary stelae, proclamations of Akhenaten's intent, recorded the pharaoh's wishes and some of his reasons for moving to the new location. The boundary stelae of Akhet Aten are a priceless record for historians, and impressive monuments in themselves. Once again, Akhenaten commissioned these stelae in year 5, but it took a few years for the work to reach completion. And that also works to our advantage. For just as the artisans began finishing the first texts, Akhenaten added extra comments and references. 
These addenda, or colophons, help flesh out a bit more of what the king was thinking, and more importantly, they tell us what he was planning in years 7 and 8, when his movement to Arket Aten was well underway. Regnal year 9, 1354 BCE, was a big year for religious concerns. Once again, Akhenaten publicly changed aspects of his philosophy and his views on the Aten. The sun god, shining above, had developed as a new, quote-unquote, manifestation of Ra Horaketi, Ra, the Horus of the Two Horizons. This old name connected it to the more traditional religious ideas of the 18th dynasty. And maybe that was intentional, a way for Akhenaten to publicize his ideas to normal people in an understandable form. In Regnal Year 9, that changed. Royal monuments no longer made references to Rahoraketi. Instead, the sun god was referred to by a new name. Now, he was frequently known as Living Aten, and sometimes Heka Aten, the Aten who rules. Which suggests that the king's ideas were either evolving, or that he was initiating the next phase of his reforms. Scholars are divided on which of those concepts is more likely a long-term plan rolled out in stages, or an evolving ad hoc set of principles. Whether you think Akhenaten was making it up as he went along, or following a cohesive plan, the period around year 9 is where events start to ramp up once again. The dates of this next event are uncertain, but we'll say year 10 for the sake of the narrative. In this context, the birth of Akhenaten's son was surely an event of major significance. Tutankhaten, future pharaoh, came into the world somewhere around regnal year 10, 1353 BCE. Maybe it was slightly later, maybe slightly earlier, we can't know for sure. But whenever it happened, the day that this baby arrived must have caused a sigh of relief in the throne room. For ten years, Queen Nefertiti had borne many children, but no sons. Now, at last, a viable heir of Akhenaten's loins had arrived. Of course, there is a great deal of uncertainty about who exactly Tutankhaten's parents were. The mother is really uncertain. Was it Nefertiti, or Kia, or another now-forgotten wife? Furthermore, was the father actually Akhenaten or someone else? There are many unanswered questions here, which we will explore further, along with the 2012 DNA studies and the issues which that raised. Suffice to say, we haven't seen the last of Tutankhaten, and we are certainly not done with the controversies of Akhenaten's family. From year 10, we move to year 11, around 1352 BCE. Now, not much happened in this year specifically, so we'll take the opportunity to talk about Akhenaten's daughters. The children of Pharaoh are an important group, and some of them would play significant roles in the politics of Akhenaten's later reign. So, indulge me for a moment, as we put the kiddies in their place. The eldest daughter of Pharaoh was named Merit Aten, or Beloved of Aten. She appears very early in the reign, almost as soon as Nefertiti becomes queen. And after surviving the danger period of infancy, when most deaths would occur, Merit Aten became the very public favourite of her parents. We see Akhenaten giving gifts to Merit Aten, dandling her on his knee and kissing her fondly. Images that are all but unprecedented in the public art of Egyptian royalty. 
The first daughter of the king, his beloved, would be an important player in the coming years, and it seems that from the start, Merit Aten was Pharaoh's special child. Other daughters soon followed. Meket Aten, or protected by Aten, Ankesen Pa Aten, she lives for Aten, Nefer Neferu Aten, or how beautiful is the Aten, and Setep Enra, chosen by Ra. One by one, the family of Pharaoh filled out as his wives, Nefertiti and Kia, produced more children. The balance of evidence suggests that maybe the girls all belonged to Nefertiti, but again, these questions are really uncertain, and we can't make any definitive statements. All we know is that the daughters were all born before year 12, and some of them would start to become very noticeable in the coming years. Finally, Regnal Year 12, 1351 BCE, was a high point in royal propaganda and imperial pomp. In this year, during the planting season, around January or February, the city of Arket Aten played host to a vast array of foreigners. Emissaries and prisoners came to the court from all directions. Bedouin from Libya and Sinai, vassals and prisoners from Canaan and Syria, and tribute-bearers, plus captives, from a recent war in Nubia. All came begging for the, quote, breath of life, and Akhenaten's high officials commemorated the event in their tombs. This celebration of tribute was a marker of Egypt's power over its neighbours. Communities throughout Nubia and the Near East gave their nominal loyalty to the pharaoh and his warriors. This power was maintained by the memory of vicious campaigns waged by Akhenaten's forebears, and the gradual weakening of older imperial powers, notably the Mesopotamian kingdoms of Mitanni and Assyria. As Egypt rose through the 18th dynasties, other powers were falling back, and for a time the pharaoh was undisputed master in the Near East. Unfortunately for Akhenaten and his subjects, that was going to change in a big way, rather suddenly. The second phase of Akhenaten's reign seems to be one in which the king brought many of his ideas to fruition. The move to Arket Aten, Amana, was achieved, and the great structures rose steadily. Palaces, temples, suburbs, and tombs developed within a short space of time. Between regnal years 6 and 12, Arket Aten began, grew, and developed. The king's idea was implemented successfully. Religiously, Akhenaten also completed the shift that had begun in year 5. After changing his own name to Akhenaten, he also changed the Aten's name to one more suitable for his ideas. With the sun god's new name, the king refined his concept of a universal deity, one that was pure and unadulterated by references to older gods. Now, the king could move forward, confident in the fact that his beliefs were being articulated clearly. Aten was the ruler of heaven, Akhenaten the ruler of earth. The father in the sky and the son in Egypt ruled together, their power and majesty sure to endure for millions of years. This confidence may very easily have translated into arrogance. As regnal year 12 ended and the celebrations of his imperial might wrapped up, Akhenaten might have viewed the world as his plaything. Victories in Nubia had confirmed his military supremacy, and his vassals in the Near East fell over themselves to offer loyalty and gifts to the glory of the king. Things may have seemed good abroad and at home. 
So phase two is a pretty good one overall for Akhenaten. The king achieved many of the goals that he had set out to, and his family was healthy and flourishing in many respects. By regnal year 12, his mother, Queen T, was still alive, and perhaps living with him full-time in the new city. So everything was going quite well, and as year 12 came to its end, the king may have been able to relax, enjoying the comforts of his palace, and confident in his supremacy over his world. Sadly, the third and final phase of his reign would be more like a slow decline. From regnal year 12 onwards, Akhenaten's story becomes a lot more complicated and a lot more unsettling. As we move into the last six years of his rule, Egypt's royal household and many of its friends and allies will begin to suffer great hardships. Of course, the king probably did not know this, and as the celebrations for the festival of tribute were packed up, the king was still free to enjoy his dream, the Aten shining above and an endless rule ahead. Hi everyone, thanks for sticking around. For those who are interested, here is a quick update on what is in store for the podcast over the next couple months. We will begin phase 3 of Akhenaten soon, but the narrative is going to have to wait a little while. There are two reasons for this. Firstly, I'm approaching an important milestone in my PhD studies at university. I have a couple of very important tasks to complete in order to progress to the next phase. As you can imagine, that is quite a heavy workload at the moment, and a lot of stress. So please bear with me while I get through that trial. The second reason is a more straightforward one. When it comes to Akhenaten's last years of rule, the amount of secure historical information begins to dwindle quite sharply. So we have fewer events to talk about, and a lot more vague or ambiguous ideas and themes. Which makes structuring my story a lot harder. Meanwhile, the number of questions and controversies in this period increases in a big way. New actors unexpectedly appear on the scene, and they complicate the overall picture. Basically, we have less reliable evidence and more questions, which is going to make my job a lot more challenging. To overcome this, I'm doubling the normal amount of pre-production and planning for these episodes, charting out the various problems we need to tackle in order to understand what was happening. Doing this will give us a more cohesive narrative in a period of history where cohesion is sorely lacking. I'm confident that this extra pre-production will pay off and result in a better story. So, with an extra workload from my PhD study and a complicated narrative to untangle, the next episodes in Akhenaten's reign may take a little while. Fortunately though, I still have some material with which to entertain you. Recently, I conducted two interviews with noteworthy Egyptologists. Leslie Ann Warden of Roanoke College and Elizabeth Froude of Oxford University graciously joined me on the show to discuss aspects of ancient Egyptian life and society. I'm pleased to present these two interviews for your listening pleasure. They are releasing very soon. Also, I have begun putting the finishing touches to my second Syrian Tales series. I'm calling this one Babylonian Tales, and it will cover events from the fabled kingdom of Babylon. 
From the glory days of Hammurabi, through the legendary tales of gods and heroes like Gilgamesh, to the underrated and unfairly forgotten kingdom of the Kassites, which flourished in the days of Akhenaten. These will be the subject of three episodes, the first of which will be ready very soon. Once again, these Tales episodes will be part of a fundraiser. This time, I'm raising money for two charities, Amnesty International and Shakti New Zealand. The original impetus for Babylonian Tales was the barbaric mass shooting in Christchurch, New Zealand in March 2019. Well, we're almost a year out from that event, so now I'll be raising money to combat these kinds of issues more generally. The fundraising will be donated to these two charities, and I will post details on the website. For those who want more information, you will find it at egyptianhistorypodcast.com. So, the upcoming episodes will be two interviews with notable Egyptologists, and the release of episode one of Babylonian Tales, a fundraiser episode. For the interviews, keep an eye on the feed. For the fundraiser, I'll post announcements when it is available for purchase. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. I'll see you soon, hopefully not too long, when we resume our narrative of Akhenaten, King of Egypt.